Welcome to Ask the Experts. I'm your host, Michael DePoe Wilson, and this is the interview show that is powered by you, our listeners, where I ask questions submitted by you to our guests who are leaders in the field of anesthesiology. And you can do that by contacting us either by email or on Twitter, where you can find us at Anesthesia News, and you can find more details about submitting questions in the show notes. Now, our interview this month is with Dr. Peggy Seidman. Dr. Seidman is a board-certified pediatric anesthesiologist in Cleveland, Ohio. She partners with SmileMD, a mobile anesthesia service company founded by anesthesiologists to provide anesthesia care for local dental procedures. Now, if Dr. Seidman or SmileMD sound familiar to you, it's because Dr. Seidman is also the author of a recent commentary in Anesthesiology News, which was titled, How Mobile Anesthesiologists Can Help Provide Hospital-Grade Care for Dental Procedures. It was a really interesting commentary, and it actually sparked quite a bit of conversation and debate around this topic. So we wanted to catch up with Dr. Seidman one more time to discuss some of these details of this topic in a little bit more depth. And a few other things came up as well. So without further ado, here's our interview with Dr. Peggy Seidman. The Anesthesiology News e-newsletter is a free resource from the most widely read publication for the specialty. Get the latest clinical news and multimedia content delivered right in your inbox. Go to anesthesiologynews.com slash e-news to sign up today. Okay, welcome to the show today, Dr. Seidman, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so before we get started with some of the questions we have for you today, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a double-boarded pediatric anesthesiologist. I worked exclusively in academic medicine environments, uh, tertiary care facilities for uh, my career. Um, as medicine evolved from my training period in the mid-80s through to the aughts, um, I got as I watched the evolution of kind of the way we deliver medical care now versus 30 years ago, I got kind of frustrated with some of the hierarchy and the administration demands on physician and healthcare delivery. And, and I just started to burn out. Um, I had, I retired formally um, as a full professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, University Hospitals, um, anesthesiology department. Um, but I was looking for something to continue to contribute back, um, but I didn't want to deal with the frustrations that are kind of endemic in not even just academic medicine, but in, in medicine as practiced in America today. Um, and I found SmileMD as a company that allows me to continue to care for patients without the frustrations that I was finding in hospital-based care. I mean, that's definitely an interesting journey. So just talking a little bit about SmileMD, could you tell us what that company is and, and what your role is there? Uh, SmileMD is a relatively new company under six to eight years old. It was actually founded by physicians, which is a very rare thing in healthcare today. The vast majority of healthcare is being delivered by people with MBAs who envision a way to um, develop a company with healthcare kind of tacked on. Um, so the difference was that this was a company that was founded by physicians focused on the way physicians can contribute and give care in a realm that has been relatively underserved, which is office-based care. When we look at kind of the way medicine has evolved, I mean, everybody you kind of used to go to the doctor's office and, you know, you had a boil in the early 1900s and the doctor would get, you know, take a hot metal poker and lance your boil in his office. And that was how we did health care. Um, and as we've kind of moved more to a much more hospital-based tertiary care acuity setting, um, and that's saved many lives and serves as a very useful purpose, but there are still many, many, many patients who can and should be taken care of in a much less involved setting. It's both advantageous for the patients, it's advantageous for the healthcare providers. Um, there are a lot of 
simplifications that can be achieved safely that you don't need the ordeal of going to a big crazy hospital to deliver care. And recognizing that, they also recognized that that there was a need for anesthesia care within these settings and developed a a company to provide an environment to provide safe care in offices, which are probably the last wild west of care. There are no overarching federal programs that come and check. There's no JCO that comes and looks at whether you're doing things to a standard. It's really based on nothing. And so what people are doing in their offices and who's providing what care is a big question mark. And and we don't know what we don't know. And there aren't good databases to say, well, we're doing this many millions of cases in GI doctor offices or dental offices or plastic surgery offices. And because there's no oversight, there's no demand to report complications there where there are with the federal hospital oversight surgery, we don't have a numerator or a denominator to look at outcomes and safety. So SmileMD wanted to set the bar to be comparable delivery of healthcare as if you were in a hospital I always like to pause right beforehand and just find out a little bit about how you got into anesthesiology in the first place. I always think it's interesting when we get to talk to professionals in the field, people who have been doing their job for either a little while or a long time and maybe moved around a little bit within the profession um, like you have, to go back and say, like, when did you first um, know that you wanted to be an anesthesiologist? Do you remember that moment? I went to medical school wanting to be a different kind of physician. I had um, thought that primary care, delivering direct care to patients was something that would be something I would find pleasure in. Um, and I had the very difficult experience as a third year medical student, whereas I rotated through the different specialties, as opposed to people like, oh, I loved everything. I didn't like anything. I was like, oh, God, if I have to look at one more, well, baby, I'm going to blow my brains out. Oh, you know, I mean, I just it was just not for me. And then I did I did a two week anesthesia elective kind of transitioning from my third to my fourth year of medical school and went, oh, thank God I'm home. Um, it, it was everything I liked, which is direct patient care without the long term liability of having to know people forever. Okay. Um, okay. We give kind of the most intense patient-centered care, and then you go home and I don't have to know you anymore. And to be honest with you, that appealed to me on a lot of levels. <laughs> I've heard that described a lot as like you have those really intense moments of care. and um, But yeah, the ability to step back, I can see like how that would also be a really valuable part of the process <laughs> to step away especially as a, as a parent mm-hmm. uh, or working mom specifically, the ability to know that when I left the hospital, someone was there equal to me was doing the job versus when you're, you're a primary care person, you're always somewhat liable and on call and available. You never completely can disconnect from your job the way anesthesiologists do. If I can give a plug for working moms, Uh, (laughs) that for me when as a single parent was remarkably helpful for a career, be able to really disengage, walk away and not have to think about it. Right. I can definitely understand that. I'm not going to drag my, my poor wife into the, the podcast too much, but she's a physician assistant at a hospital and we have that same experience with her. She, when she comes home, she's home and she doesn't have to think about it, which is really great. So I I know a little bit of what you're talking about, which is definitely a valuable thing. It really, you know, to be able to, to give to your family, which I would say as important as it is to being a doctor, raising my children remains the most important thing I ever did to be able to focus on family in a way that a lot of physicians can't. There's always some part of, of them that's still at work. But anesthesia truly allows you to walk away. Or me, 
I don't know that that's the case for everyone. Well, that's wonderful. Thank, no, thank you so much for that answer. It's so nice to get to hear that. And it, it is such a, you know, everyone comes to the profession in such a unique position from a different place. I want to go into our, our first round of questions. We have a few rounds for you. And the, and the first one is our ask me anything round of questions, which is in this episode, it's unique because we published your commentary in May and it generated a lot of discussion. And, um, and it was, you know, from general readers, but I think we actually might've drawn in some, you know, high level uh, authorities on the discussion as well, who wanted to weigh in on it, which is always welcome. And, and we're always happy to do that at anesthesiology news. So We'll go through a little bit of that and just kind of get your your feedback on it and get a chance to hear you respond to some of those comments. So the first one is definitely in the weeds kind of question. And this is a comment from a reader who is, uh, his username was Vitor Darren, I believe. So the first question, though, is about payment. So the reader is just curious, how much do you charge for anesthesia in, in this office-based setting? When we look at this question, there are many answers. The vast majority of what we do for children is actually Medicaid paid. And the Medicaid reimbursement varies from state to state the same way the program does for other things. Um, Medicaid covers children from 3 to 12. And so that's the ages that we focus on because it allows us to serve specifically what we refer to as the disparities of healthcare in the country. I have no idea what the Medicaid reimbursement is. We also take private insurance and many people blessing given this era of unstable health care coverage in America. People do have dental insurance that frequently covers the anesthesia cost. In addition to which we have private pay and patients, parents of patients who have um, a need do actually pay privately. Um, and so there's three ways that we can be paid. I don't literally because of the way the company structure is set up and to my happiness level, I don't really have anything to do with that. So exact dollar amounts, I, I, I unfortunately, or actually fortunately, because I like, you know, part of the nice thing about being an academic medicine also was it didn't matter to me what the insurance coverage was. I could just got to take care of the child, focus on that and be really independent of that. So that if you're Medicaid, if you came in with a gold Amex, I, I literally don't know when I'm taking care of patients. Um, yeah, that, that is interesting. And and our commenter actually had a couple other kind of follow-ups on that, I guess. And, and so one of them is, you know, correct me if the, the wording here isn't exactly right, but do you apply spontaneous ventilation of the patient or controlled with intubation or laryngeal mask uh, inhalation or IV anesthesia? So it's kind of like a... Again, there are a lot of ways to skin the cat and the cat's dead regardless of how you do it. And there are style and many ways that this can be done. What I do personally is what I do, and it's not necessarily right. It's just my style. Let me stop for a minute. You don't apply spontaneous ventilation. Right. People spontaneously ventilate. Right. You can do, you can technically maybe apply controlled ventilation because that's, you know, a ventilator that breathes for the patient, but patients breathe spontaneously or they have controlled ventilation. Our anesthesia delivery system doesn't have a ventilator. When you look at our setup, we have, you know, assist, we have a air airflow, all of the stuff that a standard monitor does, including inhaled anesthetic, specifically sevoflurane or isoflurane. Um, and all of that connects a circuit with a bag. When you squeeze the bag, you can give the patient a breath. That can happen with the patient spontaneously breathing on their own, right? So the patient takes a breath, and I give them a little bit, big, bit of breath at the end of, the, of their breath, right? I think, oh, you're not breathing deep enough here. I'll just supplement and give you a little extra, make you take a deeper breath than you meant. Um, and there are ways to do that within the system that are probably much more technical than you want to get into in terms of positive pressure and applying PEEP or CPAP or, you know, all those different things that, that we don't need to talk about. But because we do not have a ventilator on our anesthesia machine, 
The patients are spontaneously breathing for the vast majority of it with occasional supplement through a manual bag ventilation. Does that make sense? In my hands. Um, but again, even if you're running a propofol total IV anesthetic, even if you're running an oral air, an oral, um, an LMA, which is a very difficult airway in a dental case, and I would not suggest it um, because of the movement in the mouth of the LMA. I have some very fast dentists that I occasionally throw an LMA because they're banging out four teeth and it's going to be 15 seconds. But for the vast majority of my cases, which run anywhere from 20 to 20 minutes to two hours, I do a deep nasal intubation without paralysis, keep the patient breathing on the inhaled anesthetic. This next question is kind of not even a question so much as a discussion point. And it's it, it's going back to your commentary and the comments that have been left on it and some of the discussion around it. So we actually had um, the... Um, the current president and the past president of the American Society of Dentists and Anesthesiologists, the ASDA, uh, kind of weigh in and talk about this. And and there's definitely p- partially a little bit of misunderstanding in the comments about exactly what was going on in your commentary. But the general thing that was brought up was was the idea of of how well um, dentists and anesthesiologists are trained and how that differs from MD anesthesiologists. And so, you know, you talk a little bit about already about that difference in the office based care. Uh, in those requirements, but could you kind of just, you know, maybe just so our listeners kind of understand, you know, what a dentist anesthesiologist is, what their role is, and, and why their training differs in the way that it does? Um, dentist anesthesiology care is similar to MD anesthesia care. Somebody is already a dentist. So you've done your four years of dental school and you've graduated in good stead. At that point, some dentists choose to do an a dental anesthesia residency, which is currently a three or four year training program. They do not do dentistry at all during those years. Those years are dedicated to training in anesthesia exclusively. The initial training of a year is kind of like an internship where they go in hospital base and they rotate on internal medicine, pediatrics, learn more of the medical aspect of caring for patients that is not part of dental education. Similar to the way an internship for a doctor. You know, I, I think that medical school is about a four-year language lesson. You don't learn how to take care of patients until you actually do a residency. And I think that that's really, um, that's a very important thing to focus on. When we look at the difference between, and I know we're going to get to a little bit of this, of the dental anesthesia training versus the MD anesthesiology training. Dental anesthesiology training has a mandatory period of time and a mandatory number of cases in an office-based setting. Anesthesia residencies, ACGME accredited across the country, you know, anesthesia residencies, don't have that requirement. Um, although there are many, you know, to, to address one of the issues was, there are many anesthesia residents that offer an office-based So it's not really true that the MD docs get no office space. They get it potentially electively as a, instead of doing, you know, an extra month of hearts, the program provides the opportunity to deliver office-based care. It's not universal and it's not a mandatory requirement of the MD residencies, but it is frequently an opportunity that an MD anesthesiologist can train with. The dental anesthesiology training is much more focused on this care and provides much more formal training in delivering anesthesia in these settings. The intern year kind of solidifies, oh, here's all this knowledge. Oh my God, now here's a patient. Um, And the dental anesthesiologists spend time doing that. Then they do anesthesia concurrent with usually anesthesia residents. They don't do cardiac because that's not anything they're ever going to do. Most programs do not do cardiac anesthesia, do not do, some do neuro, some do not, because depending on how you feel about neuro and airways and dental cases, neuroanesthesia may be an exposure they should have. 
So that varies from dental anesthesia training to dental anesthesia training. Um, the training at Pittsburgh and Stony Brook, which are the two programs I've worked with, both do neuro cases with their dental residents. They don't do OB because that just isn't appropriate. Like, why would they need to do epidurals? It's not appropriate. State to state, even with boarding, dental anesthesiologists are mostly confined to doing anesthesia for head and neck cases. So it's dental and OMFS, occasional ENT, depending on the state and the way they've defined that. So they train um, in general surgery, doing appies, you know, gobblers, all of that as part of their general anesthesia training. But they're not, that's not part of their final practice. In addition to which, as we discussed earlier, they have a mandatory, I believe it's six months out of the three years, and, and I don't quote me on that, but they have a mandatory, A, base number of cases and number of time that they must do to be board eligible in direct office-based settings. So they are in many ways uniquely qualified because this is their niche. Right? This is what they train for, dental OMFS, head and neck, these kinds of things. Um, so they are extremely valuable care providers for this very underserved niche of care. That said, there aren't a lot of programs. So it's not like we're, you know, that there's a, you know, when you, even anesthesia programs, there aren't that many, but when you look at the total number of dental anesthesia residents graduating each year, it's well below. 100. I mean, you have to ask them how many there are. In, but, in, but, you know, Stony Brook, which is an extremely good program, for a year. For a year. Um, and, and so they're in very high demand because we're not generating that many of them. And the effort and time, I mean, I worked with Dr. Epstein when he brought up that residency. And, you know, all the paperwork and all the accreditation and, and designed with him specifically what the pediatric rotation, what they needed to do, how many cases they should see, what environments they should work in for their pediatric experience. All of that, um, Dr. Epstein and I developed together as he developed that residency. And that's considered one of the top residencies in, in the country. And those are extremely well-trained residents. Okay, well, that's great. That's great to hear. And and so the, yeah, that kind of gets to you were talking about uh, Dr. Ralph Epstein, and then the the current president is Zach Messiah, and and he commented, and I think he was kind of seizing at the opportunity to say, oh, this is uh, a topic that's showing up in an anesthesiology specific publication, and I want to make sure that people understand what our training is. To your point, as you just laid out, and so. Uh, that discussion kind of came from there talking about the difference uh, in, in the training that dentists and anesthesiologists go through. And, you know, one question that kind of comes out of that conversation and out of what you were just saying um, that I, th that I'd like to know, and I think our listeners would like to know too, is so th what is the role or, or the, maybe the, the co-role that you have with these, maybe a smaller number of dentists, anesthesiologists, and the possibility of having anesthesiologists do this mobile anesthesia care, um, I would say that there is a desperate need for care providers comfortable in this environment on every state we can think of. This, this field has, is first of all, new, um, old, <laughs> but... <laughs> Here, have a little libelum lie still. Um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so as we reinvent a better wheel, um, there are a lot, of, a lot of models for how this is being done. There's single provider models where a provider comes in with all of their equipment, everything they need, they're a self-billing system, they are screening their own patients, and they show up at a dentist office as a single entity. There are models where it's a paramedic and a, and a provider, whether it's a dental anesthesiologist or an MD anesthesiologist. 
And then there's the SmileMD model where we have a nurse who does pre-op and post-op and covers those patients for us. The paramedic who, who is titled as an anesthesia coordinator, who provides, who comes in with the SmileMD connection and the drugs and the anesthesia machine and all of our disposables and, you know, the computer link for back to the company for billing and, and I show up like the prima donna I am and play doctor. Um, and I have the support structure around me in my care. Um, so all of those are functioning models. Um, and my opinions are my opinions. I'm not here to say that a provider as a single person in a dentist office isn't safe. Um, there are many ways that people can keep children safe in their hands um, and it, within their comfort zone. What I do not think is acceptable care is a single provider providing sedation while they're doing the surgery. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's, I mean, that's definitely a conversation that has been going on for a while, as you alluded to. And, and, you know, you bring up an interesting potential solution to that and that anesthesiologists can, can sort of come back to helping out in these cases. Um, the way that you have. And so I was curious, you know, just as in, if any of our listeners are listening in there, they have maybe a passion for this patient population or just an interest in, in like how you've done this. Do you have advice for how they could get into helping out in any of these type of models? Um, well, it's interesting because it, as, as, as we're talking about, it varies state to state what the potential coverage is. Um, and it, the key factor, and Dr. Epstein and I had a long discussion about this, when you look at providing underserved care, right, disparities of healthcare delivery, um, there are counties in my state of Ohio where there is not an available pediatric dentist who accepts Medicaid. Whole counties where you cannot get a dentist to accept who's accepting Medicaid. And some of that has to do with the state-to-state Medicaid differential. Um, so there are states where the Medicaid reimbursement for an anesthesia team doesn't cover a three-person team. And so to be a profitable system, you can only bring a paramedic and pay him because then you're not making any money. Um, so part of the magic of SmileMD for me was most physicians, especially those of us who've been hospital-based, tertiary care, you know, I've never been anything but, but an employee. The, the challenge of, of setting up a billing structure, I mean, I, you know, I, I used to sign charts and, 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 and like it went away. <laughs> so, you know, the impediment, I think, is you, as, a, as let's say somebody looking to maybe do this 10% of their time, pick up two days a month, just just to keep, you know, they're a pediatric person, but they're in a general hospital and, you know, they want to keep up some ped skills. So doing a bunch of healthy kids to maintain skill level two days a month um, could be a nice supplement break from the mundane, you know, kinds of care. Companies like SmileMD that basically let you waltz in as your prima donna doctor self and have all the structure for support. I wish they were more common and that, that there was every, in every state I could tag a company that works under a similar model. Um, because for me, that was, that was, that was the ticket. Um, as it, um, so, and you know, there are smaller companies, there are companies. Um, so, you know, what I, you know, smile MD is currently, you know, in Ohio, Kentucky and Illinois and, They'd love to have you come. We, we, we need docs like, like nobody's business. We can't keep up. And it shows to the tremendous societal need that there is. You have a good system. You, you start a smart service. You provide good service with good patient care where the dentists know. I mean, when I walk into offices, they're like, yay, smile MD day. Like really, like, like they love it as opposed to like the administrator in the pre-op. How come you're so far behind and you're all out and you're 20 minutes behind and you would see back, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's what we got to be doctors. 
right? Somebody's happy to see me every day I walk in that office. And that's so different than the pressures of modern venture capital driven healthcare in America. So I don't have a good answer for you. I mean, I'll, I'll say this. I think that is a good answer because I think pe- anyone who's interested should look. And, and as you were saying, it's, it really is like state or maybe regional based. And- or, you know, and, and there, you know, as I talked to Dr. Epstein, who, again, we're very, very dear friends um, about the variability across the country, because he said he sends his residents go all the way across the country. Um, this graduating year, one of, thank God, one of his residences is coming to Kentucky to work for Smile MD. Um, cause I was like, Ralph, we need people. Send me your residence. <laughs> um, so what I would tell people is if you have an interest in this, there is a tremendous need. There is a tremendous caseload that needs to be helped. And when someone said, well, you know, you're charging, I'm like, vast majority of what I do is Medicaid. Right? These poor kids have rotted out mouths. They can't, they've had abscess after abscess. They can't get care. They're waiting six, nine, 12 months to get a hospital slot. And then it's going to be a disaster because they're the healthy dental and they got bumped for a trauma and then they got bumped for something else. And then the room is running late and now they haven't eaten for 12 hours and it's still not their turn and you're still sitting in the waiting room. Right? Who needs that for a healthy kid? What a waste of resources. What a waste of time. We need the trauma centers for the kid who just got hit by the car, not cleaning healthy teeth, for God's sake. Right? I mean, optimization of resource utilization. I mean, it's ridiculous. Or we play it out ridiculous, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> sure. 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 Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess there there you have it is is to kind of see where, where things are in your state and your community and where the needs are. It seems like those I, needs I are there. I promise you there. There, are, there are needs. I promise you. And if you call, you know, some of the dentists I work with who do their own simple, you know, pediatric dentists, you know, give oral versed in their offices. You know what? I don't have a problem with that. Light sedation. Versus versatile nitrous, I'm not worried about that. When you start stacking two and three drugs for a sedation in an office as a single care provider, you are not being safe anymore. In my academic career of three decades, I lost three children in emergency rooms who had been sedated in OMFS offices and came in debt. Because they were over-sedated for the procedure to get them to lie still. They got put in a quiet room for recovery room, which wasn't a recovery room, with just a pulse ox and somebody with a high school education being told, oh, as long as that number is 92, they're fine. And they're not. Three kids in 30 years dead from office-based procedures. And that's just me. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, definitely a need, <laughs> definitely a need. Well, you know, on, on that note, I mean, I appreciate you giving us all that. We'll make sure that we uh, provide any any links or any of the suggestions you've given us, so people can see that. Yeah, I had, um, what I think is um, a very dear friend of mine, Dr. Rita Agarwal, who's out at Stanford, Luso Packard, has been an incredible advocate in the state of California to try to get oversight for these cases. Um. And she has been fought tooth and nail. And what we do know is just because you haven't asked the question doesn't mean you don't have a problem. And given that there is no required national database of complications for these procedures, you can't say you're safe. What, you, what we can say is we don't have the data because you're not required to report complications. And until you are required, the way hospitals are required, the way surgeons are required, the way ambulatory surgery centers are required to report complications, you can't say anything. You may be safe. You can't say that. And to say that, oh, yeah, well, we're keeping a database. 
required reporting of complications is not a mandatory federal issue. You don't have to report it, right? So you have a kid, you know, we don't know. We don't know where they go. We don't know how many cases you're doing. We don't know how you're doing them. And we don't know a complication rate. It is the wild west. So I know that the OMFS guys adamantly believe they're safe. You can't say it until you have the data. And as I talked about with SmileMD, we're talking about healthy ASA one and two kids. You should have a complication rate of one in five million. How have I seen three kids in 30 years? Right. And, and again, without a numerator and a denominator of caseload to complications, we don't either of those numbers. So we don't, we don't have a bar of safety. It may be completely fabulous safe. It may, you know, but turned out like when we looked at kind of the Florida data about plastic surgeons having complications, their complications were like one in 10,000. You know what the anesthesia data for that was like one in 5 million for their cage base. And they thought they were doing great until everybody went, whoa, 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 whoa. No, you're not. You're killing people. But it's the same situation. They don't have to report. They don't report. Any, any reporting that they say they do is held in their hands and no outside review of their data. And I'm sure, you know, and I don't want to bash the OMFS people because that's not the intent, but you're killing people. It's, yeah, it's like you said, it's the Wild West. You, you need the data. You need well, to be able to prove it. anything without the data. I mean, SmileMD has a database of 10,000 kids already. That's fabulous. But you shouldn't have had any complications in that. You're not even close to power for statistical significance for that number. Sorry, did a research fellowship. Know how to do this. Okay, let's move on to our next round of questions. In this round, we'll go over some topics and questions that you wish people would ask you more often. So the first question we have is, how has COVID impacted pediatric dental care? Well, I, I think that I think that that's when we, you know, certainly COVID impact on healthcare has been tremendous. Um, and dentist office got shut down the way everybody else did. And what it served to do was highlight what we've been talking about, which is disparities healthcare delivery. Um, and so the backlog was already tremendous. And what COVID did was seem to just not only everybody recognized the problems, but exacerbated it to the extent that now it's even worse. Right. Um, kids who had to wait four weeks to get in. Now you have a six to eight week. Um, I work with a dentist who it took him six months to catch up to his caseload after being shut down for, for uh, the governor shut him down from 2020 March to, I think, early May. So just that two months of being shut down and the backload of cases that he had to contend with to get back to where he could be scheduling kids two to four weeks out, took him six months to catch up. So it just served to show what a tremendous problem access to care is for some of these children. Right. And, and so, you know, I mean, just to kind of go back to the beginning. So, I mean, I, you know, like you said, March, 2020 was the beginning of how America started to understand COVID and, and how it was impacting us. Well, I, know, I think obviously. it was beginning of the shutdown. I'm not sure. We yeah, understand. exactly. It was the yeah. beginning. Right. That, that's true. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. It was the beginning of us locking down and seeing what, what we could do to sort of curb, curb this pandemic. But, you know, and obviously it had been weeks of, of news and of it getting worse. Um, you know, so could you just sort of like, you know, how, how did it impact the care you were delivering? Like, when did you first, when was the care you were delivering first interrupted? I had, I had retired at the end of December, 2019. And I was just doing, you know, locums, locum tenants work a week at a time, just trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. And so I got furloughed immediately. Uh, Cause in Ohio, Governor Dwine shut, shut this. It was one of the first to shut the whole state down, especially elective surgeries. Um, so my locum tenants contract basically got canceled and I didn't work for six months. 
Um, which is kind of why in like September, I'm like, oh God, I really probably need to say something come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you were in good company there. Well, a lot of well, people. You know, well, knock on wood, you know, I was, you know, reasonably frugal for 30 plus years. But um, that's, but then at the point of time, like, do I really want to be flying out a week at a time in the midst of a pandemic and staying in a hotel? Do I really want to be the locums girl who nobody really cares about? So you get thrown in all the ugly cases because if I get sick from COVID, nobody cares, right? Like all of that started to like be a different, you know, kind of decision tree for what I wanted to do. Sure, yeah. um, and, you know, a buddy of mine who worked for SmileMD said, hey, call these guys up. I'm sure they've got work. Um, and so I started as a 1099 um, and then just loved it. Um, really found the joy of care delivery back. Um, so the frustrations of my previous care delivery system, you know, as a fellowship director, you know, I never got to do cases myself. I was always teaching. I was always kind of, you know, dealing with those issues, you know, to be able to just kind of go in and take care of kids again. It was, it was a joy. Uh, and so the combination, so for me, COVID helped me find SmileMD uh, because a lot of the other options just weren't a good choice in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that was great that something good came from all that, right? Absolutely. And so another question that you have that you kind of would like people to ask you about, and, and this, we've been kind of dancing around this topic a lot is is how to improve office-based care delivery and, and so the idea that like you know someone might come up to you and say hey you know how, how can we improve this could you just you know what would your answer be to that question um i think it's there are multiple prongs the first thing we do is we have to have some kind of oversight anybody who is giving an adult or a kid drugs in an office needs to be held accountable to a national database for what they're doing and what their complication rate is. Period. The fact that there are people who are out there doing care unaccountable to anybody for their outcomes is a travesty in healthcare delivery. I'm not saying you're not safe. You may be fine. You can't prove that to me. So that's that's the bar at minimum to start. We can't improve until we know where we're standing. Step one is national reporting of caseload, drug delivery, and complications. Mandatory. Mandatory. After that, we can talk about once we have that data, we can start to look at what's a safe model and not, right? That may shake out that the guy alone in his office is the safest guy. I don't think so. Until we have the data to show it, there's no way to know. So until we have those mandatory reporting systems, which are mirrored in every other health care delivery system we have, this is not a new wheel. This is not a new bar. This is applying the bar that everybody already has to meet to a setting where we're now delivering similar care. So if I could do one thing to make it safer, let's get data. And when we have accurate reported data, we can make some decisions about best care. And until that happens, it's up to your word versus mine about what's going on. And so that that's the idea is kind of make it a little less Wild West first. Yeah. And then, bring, bring some order to chaos. And, and so, and, and another question that, that uh, you know, I, you've indicated that you would like people to ask you about is, is also just good information that on the variety of ways that care, uh, care providers 
are caring for children. So, you know, is there a resource that you kind of give to people if they're asking, like, where can I get some good information about this? Uh, the American Association of Pediatrics runs a website. I mean, you know, the, the, the problem with Dr. Google is so reliable sources, you know, your next door neighbor whose kid had her third molars out and did fine isn't a reliable source. Right. <laughs> it's um, And the website is healthychildren.org. The American Academy of Pediatrics is a reliable, well-vetted, my friend Rita coordinated on that specific um, link about who you may hear, who is a dental assistant, what is their training. Um, it goes because, you know, people say, oh, you know, my dentist said that, you know, he's got somebody to watch them. Well, who who's watching? What is, what is their title? What is their training? And it goes through very clearly the different terms that, that people may be exposed to when they're told who's watching their child. Right. So we'll, we have that resource and we will definitely make sure that uh, everyone can, can see that in the show notes and, and review that. And, and review it well and have access to it and, and share it with their patients or their family or whoever, you know. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. A good recommendation. We appreciate that. We have one last round of questions for you. And this is the kind of the let's get personal round. It's, you know, it's always interesting. And as you were saying before that you kind of had a little bit of, um, of time during the pandemic, um, in between in positions like so many of us. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, there's two things, two questions I, I always like to ask. And one is, uh, just about entertainment. So like, what, what is one thing you have really been enjoying is like movies or TV show podcasts or reading something like, is there anything that's kind of helped you kind of get through the last year and a half? It's interesting. Cause, um, a bunch of women anesthesiologists and I were talking about the one of the things we noticed is our attention spans dropped. Um, can't, can't get through a novel. Um, so I, I mostly read the New York Times and the New Yorker. Um, I'm not. I'm, I don't binge watch. <laughs> I watch news. Um, really, I, you know, I garden. I've kept a sourdough starter for 20 years. All you freaking newbies who bought the flowers, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to. I have to ask. So I also like to read the New York Times, uh, specifically. You know, the New Yorker is great as well. But is there a specific section of the the New York Times that you really gravitate to? I, I'm assuming it's not based based on that. It's not news. <laughs> Do you do you read the other sections, or what, which would you say is your favorite? Oh, well, I try to religiously read the magazine. Um, I usually read um, the daily. The I mean, I have a, both an internet and a, and a print subscription, and because I'm in Ohio, I only get Sunday print. You can't get every day here, uh, but I did live in New York for a long a long time when I was at Stony Brook. Um, I like to read the real estate section. So I was going to say the same thing. I really love the real estate section. So much fun. It's a, oh, what can I have if I had $5 million and needed to live in New York? I was going to say the same thing. It's the most, I think it's the most interesting section of the, of the, of the newspaper. It's the most interesting, not personally applicable section. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Especially with the year we've had for sure. It takes me about a week to get through Sunday. Okay. Well, it's, yeah, I'm, I can, I, I have that. I have that too. Yeah. You kind of pick, you know, go, go through your sections as the week goes along. Uh, and so the very last question, this is a more of a send, sending us off on an inspiring note kind of thing. So is, is there something that had recently in the last year or two that has really been inspiring you in your work or in your personal life? You know, it's interesting when people say, think it's, you know, oh, how can you take care of kids? It's so sad. They're sick. They're whatever. Um, to me, I am always inspired by the internal strength that children show in face of adversity. And the way that a three or four or five-year-old can pull themselves together and stay well inside of themselves in face of something they don't want to do. And every day I walk away inspired by the children I take care of. Well, that's, yeah, that's great. I mean, that must be, yeah, it must be incredible to see that as often as you get to. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, an adult comes in and they're already pissy, right? going to suck. I'm going to get hurt. I'm going to, whereas a kid, you can really 
find within them the strength to get through this with a reasonable attitude and strength and the resources that they use to get through their day constantly inspires me to go on. Oh, that's, yeah, that's wonderful. And thank you for that inspiring send off. And thank you so much for joining us today and, and talking about all these topics. It's been really great. Thank you so much to Dr. Seidman for being our guest here on Ask the Experts. And thank you to all of you for joining us. Now, if you enjoyed the show today, please consider leaving us a rating or a review as it really helps other people to discover the show. And we would really appreciate that. Now, I do have one note before we sign off today. This is our second to last episode of Ask the Experts for this year. We'll have one more episode in July, and then we'll be taking a short break so that we can produce and publish the next season of The Etherist. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our past seasons of The Etherist, I would encourage you to check it out. It's in the same channel as the Ask the Experts and the On the Case series. And we are really excited to bring you a third season of the show, which will be coming out in just a few months. So stay tuned for more details on that. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Anesthesiology News Presents Ask the Experts was produced this month by me, Michael DePoe Wilson. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Studios. Our editorial director is James Pruden. The rest of the team is Richard Tordo, Justin Kabak, Blake Dennis, Betty Zong, Christian Janicone, Lucia Scanlon, Kwangi Chung, Sophia Lee, and Sam Steinfeld. Ask the Experts is a project of Anesthesiology News, the most widely read publication for the specialty, and the McMahon Publishing Group.